Hello everyone and welcome back to the Future Work Life podcast and Happy New Year. It's another new series of the show and as we start the year I've got some absolutely cracking guests for you already over the next few weeks including today's guest who is Nick Bloom. Nick's a Stanford economist. He's been studying remote work for over two decades and he's a co-founder of Work From Home Research, a platform that provides insights and best practices on work from home. Now, as you might expect in a conversation around remote work, we talk about adoption, how different companies are approaching it, what the latest trends are around hybrid work and how all of these things are affecting productivity. But we also talk about some of the other issues, which I think are critically important in how individuals and organizations make decisions about where and when people work. That includes things like burnout, engagement, and of course, that ever so important relationship between work and your personal life. So I'm sure you're gonna enjoy the show. I'm sure you'll also enjoy my conversations coming up over the next few weeks. I've got another Stanford professor coming on next week, is Matt Abrahams, and he's gonna be talking about how to hone and develop your communication skills. And the following week, I've got Tyler Cowan on the show. Tyler is the founder of the Marginal Revolution Economics blog. He's a professor at George Mason University and the host of Conversations with Tyler, on which he speaks to some of the world's leading business and thought leaders. I'll see you back here for that. But in the meantime, let's get into my conversation with Nick Bloom. So Nick, it's a pleasure to speak to you today. Um, I've been following your work for a while and it's great to get you on the podcast. So thanks for joining me. It's going to be fun. So in a minute, I, I do want to ask you about remote work and I'll tackle productivity. But I, I heard you on a podcast once explaining that you prefer reading the news to reading books i'm just intrigued by that what's the thinking there is it just that you can't get into books that books go out of date too quickly or are you just a news nerd uh, you know it's funny somebody asked me on a podcast at the end name the most recent book you've been reading and i stupidly hadn't done my prep in advance i didn't notice the question was coming up so i was really flumming <laughs> and i was like I just answered honestly the honest answer is gangster granny by david Williams because i've been reading that <laughs> with my eight-year-old. And so it was. I don't think it was the answer they're expecting. But yeah, in general, certainly on work from home, this thing is moving really fast and the data's updating. I've been thinking about writing a book for a bit. The thing is, for people that don't know, you're kind of writing a book, you're looking at 12 to 18 months from when you start the thing to when it comes out. Yeah. So if I started writing, if a book of mine had come out now, you know, end of 2023, then it's probably something I wrote mid-2022. And if you look back to yeah. mid-2022, things are quite different. For example, in the last 18 months, work from home levels have stopped falling. They stabilized at the end of, of 2022. So I'd, you know, I wouldn't have seen that coming. Uh, mm. I wouldn't have seen a lot of other stuff coming. So I generally now have been focused more on the news. Uh, to be honest, I read a lot of the BBC, Wall Street Journal, not the, not the opinion pieces, the FT, <laughs> uh new york times you know guardian you can imagine yeah. mainstream stuff i use linkedin a lot actually linkedin yeah. has become fantastic for people following this when I mean, we're connected up on linkedin because twitter's kind of fallen apart a bit and because linkedin is not anonymous it's actually become really good and in fact that algorithm also prioritizes discussion which actually is really helpful so it's perfectly set up to be pretty informative and i get a lot of feedback and learn a lot from it yeah, LinkedIn is interesting. It definitely, there's, it's, there's less toxicity, I think, than Twitter. But although people have very strong opinions, particularly around this subject, right? You know, remote work, offices, 
it stirs something in people and um, you can sense there's almost this tribalism which exists in other parts of society and it seems to spill over into this how much pushback do you get particularly when you're presenting your obviously well-researched um data you know do you still get pushback from people who just have staunchly hold an opinion that office office work is best not much less than i'd think so i'd say pretty limited there are two types of pushback you might get so one is people that disagree when we do it in the open and say you know i'm not sure i believe your data has your sampling frame done this this and this whatever or which other source Generally, though, the trends, I'd say at this point, are pretty clear. I mean, work from home's up a lot. It's now stabilized. So I don't really get much debate on that because it, it's very transparent. The other group is anonymous emails. Oh, yeah, you know, some of them all caps, some of them not very polite. <laughs> if they're sensible emails, I always try and reply. But look, if they're all caps and insulting, it's not much point. I mean, that's basically trolling, and I just ignore it and move on. And I suspect a lot of that is motivated, I mean, quite understandably by people who've maybe lost you know money or business mm. that the pandemic surge post or now at this point post-pandemic surge of work from home is on average and mostly good for society there's a lot of winners but there are definitely some losers and yeah. even if you know 10 percent society's losers in a country the size of the uk or the us you're thinking tens of millions of people that lost out from that and not surprisingly some of them are gonna be angry so it mm. is what it is i think if you comment on anything you know, in uh, in the current era, in the public sphere, you're going to get angry emails. Yeah. On that note, um, talking about areas which might suffer, you wrote something about transit recently, which I found interesting, and particularly that we should be concerned about right. train um, occupancy or the number of people taking trains reducing. Why is that? What did that stir in you from moments past? Well, I was thinking of, you know, here are my list of the three biggest losers, who I think the three biggest losers are from the work from home. One is people that own commercial office space, but everyone knows that, and eventually that sector will recover. The supply will shrink a bit, and, you know, returns are going to, you know, it was going to take a few years, but it, it's going to write itself. The second group is mayors of big cities, less the UK, but more American cities. It's astounding how small American cities are, like San Francisco is only 50 square miles. And mm. for London Breed, a lot of People paying taxes and businesses have moved out to the suburbs. But again, in the long run, they'll fix themselves, you know, has a lot of upsides, there's a lot of tech, high, highly educated folks, etc. The area I'm less optimistic about, and I honestly don't see a solution, is, is transport, particularly trains. So just to explain, basically, the types of people, well, 30% of, of British and Americans are now hybrid, 10% are fully remote. But that 30% that are hybrid are mostly managers and professionals. And they mm. would typically go in and out, many of them on trains, every day on commuter rail, often buy season tickets, spend a lot of money on transit. These folks now are typically going into the office two to three days a week. The problem for train operators is now their revenues are down a lot, like 30%, ridership's down about 30%, but their costs are flat because mm. most of the costs are track trains, Labor, which is, you know, heavily unionized and they can't really cut costs. So before the pandemic, it's not like train companies were particularly profitable, particularly the commuter stuff. They're often subsidized. Post pandemic is looking a lot worse. It hasn't been so bad up until now because there's been a lot of stimulus money to try and support them. But when that money disappears, you know, it's like the tide going out thing about, you know, we see who's wearing a costume. Mm. I am nervous. And, you know, having grown up in the UK and I remember all the discussion of the beaching review and the beaching cuts, 
I, I, there isn't a solution. I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty worrying. If you know, for folks listening, if your business or your commute or anything is heavily reliant on a somewhat marginal train line, I would be really nervous. You know, next mm-hmm. year it won't pick up, but five years from now, I could easily see somebody saying, you know, to Network Rail or Caltrain where I live, hey, look, you're losing hundred you know, $100 million a quarter or a year or whatever the budget is, we can't sustain that. You're going to have to make cuts. Yeah. It made me also think about just public services in general, particularly, you know, there's obviously a shift in terms of wages for those people who have to work on the front line. So perhaps those people who don't have the option of hybrid and remote I mean, why is why is the public sector getting hit is, hit hardest right now when it comes to adjustments to pay? Yeah, I mean, the public sector, the UK is particularly extreme on this, but the US to a lesser extent, the public sector has seen harsh, very, you know, terrible real pay cuts because their pay has not kept up with inflation. I actually don't agree with that, particularly for things like teachers, healthcare workers, they're paid really mm-hmm. way below market wages and that's yeah. very costly. Um, the reason for it is, you know, huge budget deficits, you know, I'm not going to have a macro discussion, but that's what's driving it. It's not really about market forces. Yeah. What that's going to do in the long run, of course, it's going to make it far less appealing. One way the public sector can try and somewhat make good is, of course, be flexible and work from home. The tricky thing is, on the one hand, the public sectors often, if you think of kind of civil servants, that kind of public sector, not so much nurses, but think of civil servants, that seems like an ideal job. You have people working at computers, that kind of thing can be done, you know, two, three days, four days a week, maybe at home. The downside is one of the big lessons we've heard from the pandemic on work from home is you need good performance evaluation. So yeah. if you all are evaluating me and you're managing me in the office. So in the office, what can you do? You can see, am I Nick sat at my desk typing away when you walk past my desk? Is the screen on, you know, Excel or Word or is it on you know, Netflix or Champions League. It's kind of, look, it's five out of 10 management. It's not great, but you can manage me by basically observing mm. inputs. Am I working? When I'm working from home, you can't do that. You need instead to evaluate output. Do I deliver? Yep. Do I meet my sales targets, performance reviews, etc.? Problem is the public sector is not very good at that. You know, I worked in the UK Treasury many years ago and performance reviews are pretty limited. There's not much teeth in them. So, that makes me nervous about thinking of a lot of public sector workers heavily at home. I think the so what is they just need to get better performance reviews. And in fact, yeah. maybe the unions need to be more supportive of that. And it needs to be some grand bargaining. We're going to have tougher performance reviews, which means persistent underperformers are going to have sanctions. In yeah. return, we'll let you work from home more days a week. Yeah, I mean, it's clearly not exclusive to public the public sector either i mean performance reviews in general have long been broken and i think most businesses are struggling with how to manage performance reviews i mean certainly there's lots of talk about managing output and outcomes but i'm not sure how many businesses have necessarily adapted to that i mean what have you seen out there in terms of perhaps shortfalls in the belief among leaders among managers that they actually have the skills to be able to manage a workforce what are you seeing is, is that is that a problem out there at large um, yeah, so one one piece of research I have, you know, in process, you know, I'll give you a kind of peek into the future, I guess, which is arguing that chief human resource officers, folks in HR, you know, people skills are increasingly important. So I have a data set looking at the top five paid execs in the US in the largest 2000 companies. So these are all big public companies. But you see the number of those being a 
chief people officer, chief human resource officer was basically zero 25, 30 years ago, and it's now up to about 15%. And it's rising. In fact, it's rising at a, an increasing rate. And right. what's going on? Well, HR is just becoming a lot more important, and it's become dramatically more important post-pandemic for a couple of reasons. One is it's suddenly become central to strategy decisions. So if I'm a CEO and I'm now thinking about who should I hire, how much office space should I have, which product should I make, it now depends critically on my work from home decision. So we know in the data that folks in their 20s don't really want to work from home that much. They, you know, they want to socialize, they want to get mentored. They also don't have great apartments or flats. You know, it's hard to work from home if in your own bedroom and you're sharing with four other people. Whereas folks in their 30s and 40s are much keener on it because they have young kids. So, you know, one even simple strategy question is what's the age profile of who you want to hire? Mm. You want to be like Airbnb or GitHub and hire a lot of 30, 40 somethings that are experienced, in which case remote is great. Or do you want to be more like Apple or maybe Goldman Sachs have a very you know steep pyramid with a lot of 20 somethings, in which case you want them back in the office a bit more. So suddenly CHR, you know, heads of human resources are in that discussion. The other discussion they're in now, they didn't used to be, is real estate. It used to be that mm. was a discussion with the real estate folks and, you know, the CFO on like lease lengths and financing and kind of very technical financial stuff. Now, suddenly it's connected up to hybrid policy. So yeah. for me, the big so what is more money, more people into HR. If you're going to have, you know, hybrid or remote, you really need this thing running properly because otherwise it's not going to work out well. Mm. We see that, by the way, we see that very clearly in the data. So, you know, this is my advice, but, you know, firms, as an economist, the best way to think about what's the right thing to do is look at what most companies are doing. Because individual companies make mistakes, for sure. You know, they, they, they screw ups all the time. But if millions mm. of companies are doing something, it's kind of typically the right thing to do. And millions of companies are boosting spending and shares of CHR activity, of HR activity. Yeah. It's because it's harder to manage stuff and it's more important post-pandemic. Yeah, and I think the problem HR wrestle with, often performance management is weighted towards the business. And of course, that's HR's role is to try and get people to perform well to help you know, the business you know, continue to be profitable and uh, to continue to grow. But I think a lot of the people using these performance management tools that exist right now don't necessarily see the incentive for them to use it, apart from you know continued flexibility um, around where they work, for example. So only a comment that I see these technologies being implemented within a lot of companies and it fails mostly because people just don't use them but you know as as, as i said after these things it takes a little while to filter down and to actually create value for everyone in the uh, in the business um i promised i sort of teased at the beginning that we'd talk about productivity i mean it's usually the first thing that people ask you i'm sure when, you, when we have the work from home conversation which is you know has productivity been affected so i mean maybe you could just give us the latest data on it but also can you just explain what productivity actually means in this context so great so um firstly what is productivity for an economist it would be value added per hour so you know how much do you produce per hour in more practical terms it might be in a call center number of calls processed per hour in you know, IT business, lines of code written in product shipped, so I see good lines of code, sales calls made. For me, it might be classes or taught or students mm -hmm. taught per hour, research papers written, so kind of output measure. In terms of the research, I would say it's really important to break it down into fully remote, where you're you know, working from Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, rinse and repeat next week, versus hybrid, where you're, say, only working from Monday to Friday. So on fully remote, 
there's a bunch of papers. They have an enormous spread over their estimates from minus 30% to plus 15%. The big driver of this variation is how well managed it is. So Mm -hmm. the very negative numbers come mostly from early pandemic experiments, whereby firms may have differentially shut down different locations and you examine across them. And what you find is places that went to fully remote at speed with no warning, no training, no good systems saw you know catastrophic drops in productivity, which is hardly surprising. At the other end, if you look at really well-run organizations, think kind of GitHub or something that have been doing yeah. this for a long time, have systems, have training, they look like they're doing pretty well. So fully remote is a real mix. I would say for the typical organization I talk to that is going to get it roughly right, but far from perfect, they may be looking at minus 10%. It's not an unreasonable number. But the critical thing is, come back to the question, we ultimately for business care about profitability, not productivity. And so I often say to businesses, look, imagine if it, even if it is minus 10%, your, your management's okay, but not great. You have to be aware that you're saving probably about 10% on cost because of no offices and yeah. maybe another you know, 10, 20, 30, 40, 50% on lower wages because you can hire people in a bigger labor market. So the promise of fully remote is that it's it's really profitable. Maybe productivity, you know, it moves around a bit, but it's way cheaper. So that's the big sales pitch for that. If you go on the other side of the ledger and look at hybrid, hybrid looks like it's about flat on productivity. Again, a number of studies, some I've been working on, Downsides are hybrid, a bit less time in the office. So let's say you're at home Monday, Friday, a bit less FaceTime, a little bit less mentoring connectivity. But Mm. it turns out there's a couple of upsides. You save about an hour a day by not commuting in. Some of that time people spend on working. And it's quiet. And, you know, there's plenty of stories of quiet helps you focus. So hybrid, if we just look at the data, is about flat. And so, you know, I'll stop there. (laughs) And just to go back to that sort of definition of productivity in the research, it is looking at the productivity as it relates to that individual business or the business unit. So, for example, looking at how productive developers are versus salespeople versus you know marketers, for example, or are we looking at the units uh, produced? Just to just to be crystal clear, no, no, it's, a great, it's a great question because I explain why it's critical to ask. So, the studies look at individuals. So, I've run two studies on this. One is call centers. We look at yep. number of, of call center calls processed per hour controlling for quality. They randomly audit 1%. Quality is actually flat. But in the first study I did, number of calls processed is up 13% from work from home workers, actually. In the second study, I looked at folks in IT, marketing, finance. There, the metrics are a bit vaguer. There, they're like lines of code written for IT, yep. actually performance reviews, promotions for finance and marketing. We don't have any hard numbers. There, the effects look about flat. You are right to ask, actually, on individual versus business. And the reason is one of the concerns of fully remote is over less training, less innovation, less culture building, which may not affect me, but affects everyone around me. So there's often a debate, what is the correct unit? In response to that, the other very positive trend on work from home is the macro picture. So in the US, productivity growth in the four years from 2020 till now, kind of pandemic, post-pandemic, is actually higher than in the Mm. five or 10 years before. So, you know, many things have happened. But if you're a big opponent of work from home, it's kind of problematic for you to say, well, work from home has gone up fivefold. And in the same period, productivity growth has actually accelerated. You'd be like, 
huh, something else really fantastic has to have happened to offset that if I think work from home is negative. What is that? Well, we had a pandemic. Well, that's hardly fantastic. That's pretty terrible. You're going to have to make some argument about federal government expenditure or something. So I think the data all points in my mind towards maybe flat overall. The sales pitch for me is, look, I don't believe Elon Musk when he says it's, you know, it's a load of whatever turd or something. It's not particularly boosting productivity. Maybe you could argue, but it's certainly not detrimental. The big sales pitch is people like it. And so as a business person, as a manager, it costs you nothing. And you dramatically reduce retention uh, and recruitment costs. And that, that is, you know, expensive to have people quit on you. Mm. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, like, you know, productivity is but one metric. You know, it's a really important metric if it relates to profitability, but it is one metric because, of course, the other metrics, well, for a start, as we said before, you know, there's people, when you're making people decisions, it comes back to is the business growing? Are we making money? But there's also things like, and this is perhaps it sounds like an intangible metric, but you could just presumably data to back it up. It seems that at least having the option to work from home some of the time makes people happier or at least makes them less likely to quit. Totally. So, yeah, I mean, just to put two numbers on this, people on average report they value hybrid, the ability to work from home two to three days a week, the same as about an 8% pay increase. Mm. That's a hard number. When I talk to recruiters, they say, look, pre-pandemic, there were the big two perks health insurance and pension. Now it's the big three, health insurance, pension, and work Mm. from home. And they're all a big deal. And I remember talking to one recruiter, this was 2022. And she was saying, you know, if you don't offer folks at least one day a week work from home, forget it. I won't Mm. even take it on. It's just not worth it. No one's going for those jobs. So yes, to put numbers on it, you can pay people 8% more. But if it doesn't get you any more productivity to go from hybrid to full in the office, why would you? And on quit rates, the the best study I know shows offering hybrid reduces quit rates by about a third, holding everything mm. else constant. I mean, that connects up to 8%. If you suddenly offer people a big perk, you know, yeah. a third of them less quit. Yeah, I mean, anecdotally, and I, I work with quite a lot of startups and scale-ups and, you know, speak at large organizations. I, I can't think of, I mean, I can think of a handful of companies that I've come across who insist on people coming into the office full-time. When, when in in sort of knowledge work, prefer you know that sort of, that sort of things, I just don't see why you would do that. But however, I also work with a lot of tech businesses, and there is a certain feeling among some, particularly certain venture capitalists, that you know, in an early stage business, very early stage business, that you just have to have people congregating in one place, and that you have significant drop offs in innovation, for example, and uh, creativity by bringing people together. Anything to substantiate that claim or or, or, yeah, or counter it? I, I, yeah, I'm going to interview you in reverse. These are both super interesting. So on the first, Ollie, you mentioned I have the same experience, only a handful of places yeah. trying to get people fall back in the office. For you, have any of them achieved it? What I often hear is they're trying to, but they just mm. don't really achieve it because middle managers are like, well, I know where I'm supposed to, but I'm not going to push it because X is going to quit. So I just yeah. let him or her work from yeah. home to I mean, frankly, I mean, the the rare occasions, it tends to be certain industry, private equity, for example, um, where they've insisted, yeah, pretty actually not, it wasn't that long into the pandemic, actually, where they, or as soon as they were able to, they, they got people back into the office. They didn't I actually. Spoke, I spoke to Carlisle, which is one of the big three, and they are mm. three, two, three in the office, two at yeah. home, actually. 
Yeah, and 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 they didn't achieve it one hundred percent across the the workforce, but um, you know, they there was a pretty large percentage of people coming in. But frankly, it was compensated. I mean, this is the thing. I think the industries um, or at which are doing all the cases in which I've seen it it's a trade-off it's like well you know we're going to pay you a certain amount of money and uh, for that privilege you're going to come in i think ultimately play it out that doesn't last very long either because you only need another private equity firm who's willing to give people three two out of the same money and then you know your argument's gone and you you either need to give those people something else you know significant career development for example or they just find an alternative i mean that's supply and demand if there's more jobs out there we're paying the same amount of money with more flexibility then you're gonna go for one of those options so and so we're totally aligned on that and on startups you know Mm. i've heard really mixed things so Mm. on the one hand some vcs have i mean i live out in silicon valley so talk to and interact with a lot of vcs and like my neighbor over the back fence used to be a partner of big v i mean it's just like astounding how many in london (laughs) i didn't come across vcs here it's like you know Everyone, you know, everyone, half, you know, half the folks that I stand next to it on the side of my kids' football, soccer games, football games are VCs, folks. But yeah, yeah, I bet. I will say, like, tiny weenie firms, um, when there's like two, three, four founders, these folks are typically really motivated and experienced. So classic startup, two yeah. early 30-somethings that have, you know, a bunch of equity. And they know each other. They're super motivated. They're already up the experience curve. So they're less bothered. You're right. Others have said, I want them in. I want everyone to see the whites of each other's eyeballs. It wasn't clear to me whether that meant full time. I mean, one view is they have retreats every other, you know, every three weeks or something. Yeah. And they meet. It's a mix. I, I don't think for VCs is a clear pattern. I've heard every which way on this. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, me too. I spent 10 years as a founder and running companies. And I mean, actually, I would never have assumed that it was the only way to go getting people together that's the only way to be creative and actually even more so now you know I'm I'm working on some early stage projects and I work with people based all around the world and the difference I suppose is it's that classic argument for remote work you can access talent and can collaborate with talent anywhere in the world and if you're paying for it it's typically less than you were paying London or Silicon Valley and therefore you're working with a higher caliber of people make better progress so for me I don't really see the logic in it but I think there's I think it's a classic case of we haven't seen this approach work apart from your githubs and GitLabs of the world you know or Atlassian these are like rare as Rare as rocking horse shit, as well. One of my old colleagues used to used to say. But that's just you know, this is the nature of innovation, isn't it? You, you, it takes a while before you see patterns emerging. Um, but um, actually, oh, can I just ask a question about the the idea of? I suppose this is a this is a type of hybrid, and a type of hybrid which massively appeals to me and see the logic of, which is essentially that you do get together regularly, but sporadically. So let's say once a month, or even in some cases, you know, once every few months. I mean. How common is that? Is the data that you've uh, seen similar in terms of hybrid when people are coming in twice a week, for example? Do do we avoid drop-offs in productivity, for example, when you're getting together so infrequently as every few months? So I I give you the facts that I know on this, actually, which is a partial answer. So uh, I have US data. The UK, for example, is very, very similar to this. So for US, about 12% of people are fully remote. About a third of them are grads. Two thirds are actually like call center, IT support, et cetera. So of the third that are grads, they, 70% of them say that they are regularly meeting up for retreats, of which typically it's every other month. So mm. for graduates, professionals, anyone listening to your to this show, probably that is fully remote, is, you know, typically is meeting up every other month. 
Mm. Um, they typically on that, I think the average is two days. So question is, is that enough? Do people, first is, do people like it? It depends actually. So, you know, we we're both talking about before the show about kids. If you have young kids, it can be quite disruptive with childcare. So yeah. it depends on your setup. I mean, I may personally find it easier to have, you know, Monday, Friday work from home than, you know, one week and six because, it, yeah. you know, childcare doesn't really set up for that. But other people really like it because it means you can live somewhere else. And particularly if you, you know, don't have kids, it's very liberating. Is it enough? Is less clear. I think it, you know, some businesses are doing really well. So as you say, there's a mix. My suspicion is firms that can get away with more infrequent meetups tend to have more experienced staff. So if mm. I flip it around and I talk to my Stanford undergrad, so, you know, my oldest kid, she's 20. Generally, they don't want fully remote jobs because the learning curve for them isn't very, you know, it's much flatter. So if your employees are like in their mid to late 30s, 40s, are pretty experienced, had 10 years, you could probably easily get away with it. If you're hiring tons of graduate intake in their early to mid 20s, I think you're going to struggle to train them. You're also actually going to struggle to just recruit them from the get go. So mm-hmm. I think it really depends. And Atlassian maybe has a bunch of 30, 40 somethings. I, I did, don't know enough about these companies, but I advise undergrads, you know, generally it's harder to be mentored and learn fully remotely. So, you yeah. you know, for your first three to five years, you should, you know, ideally try and get three days a week in the office. They mostly want that, by the way. They're typically yeah. social, want to go out and they don't yeah. have great apartments. I mean, look at this five of you sharing some yeah. flat. Uh, you've only got one living room. You know, you can't, yeah. it's actually not what they're looking for normally either. either. It made, this made me think about the, I read the phrase a while ago, it might have been you who coined it or someone else, work near home. Right. So there was this sort of idea that in, let's say that case, you have um, maybe a, a new grad, they are getting together every every other month and the, but the rest of the time they don't want to work from their home office. So they want to go into a shared working space. Are we seeing any um, trends towards people, I suppose, forming new communities around these shared working spaces? Because it's a nice idea, isn't it? I thought I live near Finchby Park in North London. There's a bunch of shared working spaces here. Um, and I know some of the other local parents who go and work in there and they tell me, oh, you know, we, we don't work together, but we've got you know got a good, good little community going of people who essentially they're a couple of days a week and we might work in a similar industry or we kind of have lunch together. And, and I can see that appeal. Any suggestion that that's a growing trend or was that a supposition post-COVID? Was this idea sort of banded around, but actually it hasn't really evolved into much? So I think it will grow. I, you know, early in the pandemic, this wasn't really a thing because the lockdown was, you know, no, the last thing you wanted to do is go into a social co-working space in 2020, mm. Um, The numbers that we have are that work from home, inverted commas, is probably 90. We think it seems to be about 94% of days are actually at home. But there's 6% okay. of days that are other places, which it looks roughly equally split into a third, a third, a third into one is like cafes, libraries, places like that. The next third will be friends and family. And the third third is co-working spaces. So initially yeah. you think, well, 2% is not very big. But on the other hand, you know, there are whatever, 30 million working Brits, you know, almost 200 million working Americans. You're looking at mm. billions of people every year across Northern Europe and, you know, and uh, North America that are working co-working spaces every day. So, mm. yes, and I think that probably will... Will it grow? Probably it will do. I think the big issue, exactly as you say, is working near home. People, the, If you ask people why they want to work from home, the number one reason is to avoid the commute. The number yeah. two reason is flexibility. 
as in, you know, I can go see the dentist or go for a run or whatever it is or pick my kids up. So you lose one if you've got to commute to the centre of town. So a local co-working space actually gives you most of the benefits because if you're in a co-working space, you're mm. totally free to go to the dentist. So, um, yeah, I think it's pretty appealing. The big thing is getting them out in the suburbs. You know, I'm in, involved in talk to firms, you know, trying to do that. Because if you look before the pandemic, most of the WeWork type space was in the centre of town in office building. And it doesn't yeah. really fit. We live out in the suburbs. I don't want to commute half an hour no. if you're into a co-working space. This is why Starbucks in the suburbs are doing really well because that's, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. the backup co-working space. Yeah. I suppose you need a certain amount of population density for it to work. Other, otherwise, it just turns into a commute into a co-working space. Um, you know, if, if there aren't enough people to, you know, to actually be able to attend that co-working space, you don't have to travel for half an hour to a co-working space just you know, to avoid a one-hour commute. It's got to be fairly nearby. I mean, the, the way you have to do it is, you know, there's a company I'm working with, Radius, that rents out whole house. I mean, it's like Airbnb hosts midweek. They oh, tend right. to be quiet on business. And instead, yeah. you can rent the house out. That's one way. Okay. The other way yeah. is some homeowners... You know, I was talking to someone the other day that said, I used to rent out my house to students. I okay. now, for the ground floor, don't rent out to students. Instead, have turned it into a kind of default little local co-working really? space and have to six wow. desks. And apparently it works quite well. So, you yeah. know, one is renting out whole units. The other is renting yeah. out desks within units. Either way, I do see that as a growth area in the suburbs. Because yeah. basically there's only so many cups of coffee and, you know, cake pops. Yeah, and yeah. Starbucks before they throw me out and it's noisy and you can't have a private conversation it's hard to have a zoom call we've all been on the other end of zoom calls in you know cafe nero starbucks and it's really annoying because yeah. i can hear the music i'm like oh yeah that's yeah. katie Perry yeah, yeah. Or Taylor Swift or whatever um so these co-working spaces if they're say i don't know 30 40 pounds or dollars a day you're like you know look i'm earning you know that's not a bad deal that's the kind of prices the rates i hear for you know, desks yeah. and local houses and stuff. But if you want the whole house, it's maybe 200, which if you're a startup, coming back to the discussion earlier, you know, imagine if you're a startup, you want to meet every other week, you want to do it in the local suburb, you can just rent out an Airbnb type property that's not being used during the day. Yeah. Interesting. I've not heard that one, but I mean, it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? You know, you've got Airbnb, there's plenty of, there's, you know, businesses now allowing you to rent your car out when you're not using it. So why not your front, it's, front it's, it's, living room? Yeah, it's radius. I mean, their idea is, it's one of these classic post-pandemic things that these property, Airbnb, the problem with it is you rent overnight. So from a host yeah. perspective, it's less appealing to someone sleeping in your bed and, you know, they could have parties and all kinds of stuff's going yeah, on. Yeah. And from the company's perspective, actually, you've got to hire two days to get one clean day in the middle. So mm. rather than hiring, you know, 3 p.m. to 11 a.m. the next day, you instead hire from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. And it's you know it's a shorter period so it works out for both sides of the market it's actually quite appealing so th i think there's just going to be a big variety of options uh going forward and so there's going to be growth in suburban co-working i actually also yeah. had lunch with jamie hadari who is the uh, founder and ceo of industrious and he was saying the same thing they're kind of looking to expand supply in the suburbs because that's right. where most of the demand is yeah very interesting um in every conversation I've had with business leaders this year, we've talked about burnout. Um, and, and I thought of this because, you know, part of that reason of people getting together consistently is building connections. And, you know, there is a genuine issue with loneliness, um, you know, when people are working from home more regularly. I mean, 
how is that manifesting in some of the data that we're seeing relating to remote work, work from home? Um, is there a connection between the two? Is there anything to show us that more flexible approaches to work, for example, can help alleviate burnout? So certainly I've been involved in two randomized control trials where you've literally taken individuals and one in trip.com, one in ctrip.com. They're, they're related to big travel agency companies, massive companies that are quoted on NASDAQ, you know, that or whatever tens of thousands of employees. And what you tend to see is allowing people at least hybrid increases uh, workplace satisfaction scores, reduces quit rates a lot. When you interview people, that's hardly surprising. So they'll yeah. say commuting five days a week is really stressful. I'm adding 30, 40 minutes a morning and evening. And plus, actually, turns out, fascinatingly, people spend about 10 extra minutes a day grooming when they go to the office. So we collected data. <laughs> more like, yeah, something's quite scary. Brush your teeth. Put in deodorant, shave, yeah. wear makeup, wash, wear fresh clothes, all of these things. You can argue whether it's good or bad, but just factually working from home saves a typical Brit or American about 70 to 80 minutes. Yeah. And of course, if you're working from home two, three days a week, that's a lot of time that you can, you know, sleep in a bit more or you know, tra- commute less. The second fact on burnout is there's a fantastic study by Danny Kammerman and co-author. So Danny Kammerman won the Nobel Prize what, about 10 years ago? And he has this paper in Science in 2002. And he evaluates how much people like or dislike activities on an hourly basis. Turns out the second most hated activity is work. I would say that's because you've got, you know, that's why you have to pay people to do it. No yeah. one does it for free. But the most hated is commuting. So yeah. hi- hybrid seems a big positive. It's less obvious on fully remote. I think the thing for fully remote is people have got to choose it. So early in the pandemic, and everyone was forced into fully remote, for some folks, that's really not appealing and it's isolating and depressing. For others, they like it. We know in our data, only about 30% of people choose to work fully remotely given the choice. 50% say they'd like hybrid and 20% say they'd prefer fully in person. Now, as in you know, 2023, early 24, uh, I think if people opt into fully remote, they're probably happiest doing that. If you're a company, if you're a large company, and you're trying to do one size fits all hybrids kind of the middle of it. So no one's too upset by hybrid. I get, you know, I'm aware there are 20% that want to go in every day and 30% that want to be at home every day. But typically, both of them are like, we're kind yeah. of settled for hybrid. Those that really don't can either move roles or move companies. But that's kind of why it's settled in. It's like vanilla ice cream. Like there are very few people <laughs> that would actively choose it as their favorite flavor. But no one really yeah. complains too much about vanilla. You didn't start looking uh, and did uh, studying remote work in 2020. I know that, but clearly so much has changed. The amount of research going into this area has significantly increased. What's the, been the biggest surprise for you over the past couple of years? Um, the biggest surprise for me has been how much this has stuck. So, mm. you know, it's a, it, 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 it's a strange journey we've had to get here. It, I mean, work from home is now stuck and it's been totally stable for the last year. So 2023 was, you know, I talk about Nike swoosh. 2020, 21, 22, work from home levels were dropping. 23, they've been stable. They'll probably be stable 24, 25. Longer run, they're going to pick up again because of better technology. But I, I'm amazed at the level they stuck. We're about fivefold above pre-pandemic. That's an incredible yeah. shift, an amazing shift. It's, you know, 50 years of growth. What we were growing on work from home before the pandemic, but yeah. it was taken 50 years. So that's the biggest surprise. Um, and it looks permanent. And it's been this kind of combination of this pandemic lasting way longer than anyone thought, plus the rebound being very strong economically. Mm-hmm. So labor markets were tight. 
you know, those two things are enough to kind of lock this thing in. I think the thing I've changed my mind on the most is in hybrid, whether people should choose the days they come into the office or not. Pre-pandemic, I did research highlighting how choice is really a big deal on this. Now, having talked to, honestly, hundreds and hundreds of companies, the story you hear a lot with hybrid is employees get really peed off when they come in and no one else is there, only half the team's there, because they say, like, what's the point of being on Zoom all day in the office? Like, why did I commute in? It's really annoying. It's half empty. It's low energy. It's dead. And so I think we need to have more coordination. I've changed my mind. So I would now be in favor of teams or maybe the whole company saying that we're just all going to come in. I don't know, whatever. If you choose three days, let's say, we're all going to come in Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. So when Ollie, you come in, I'm in, and you know, vice versa, and it's energetic, and we socialize and go for lunch together, rather than, say, letting people choose their three days. Because the yeah. problem with the latter, some choose Friday, Monday, whatever, and every day you come in, two-thirds of the team is there. If you want a bigger meeting, it's always got to then be in a conference room on Zoom. With you know, It's just yeah, annoying. Yeah. So that's the thing I've changed my mind on. And that's not so much research as just, Honestly, beating in, beaten into submission from discussion <laughs> after discussion after discussion with, I mean, by this point, I've probably spoken to more than a thousand managers and firms, and it just comes up a lot. And by the way, it doesn't need to be company level. I should just say it could be team level. It's like whatever group yeah. you work with. So Google does it team level. Disney is company level. Disney just say you got to come in Monday to Thursday. You work from home Friday. Yeah. And without going down this uh, rabbit hole, because I'm sure we could break it down even more, it seems to work best when it's done at team level, or that's been my experience anyway, where teams have some autonomy around their work mode, their work schedules at least, and that seems to work well. What I'd be really interested in, maybe a topic for another day, is how that's affected intra-team communication and engagement. There was a really interesting study by Sandy Pentland years ago about how innovation and creativity spreads within an organization. That's typically because you get different teams mixing and they had some fascinating data around how people sat in the cafeteria. And actually, if you mixed people up from other teams, there seems to be an improvement in communication and creativity. But as I said, I'll put a link in the show notes to that, but that's uh, good to no, talk totally about now for hours. I just on it, it looks like in our survey data, it is more common to do team than company level. I yeah. would say something like of large firms, something like 60% are doing team, 30% are doing company. But I think you're exactly right. And when you say the big determinant is how much people work across teams, how much yeah. if you're in a matrix, it's really hard. If instead you're just by geography and it's separate, then it's a lot easier. Yeah. Nick, thanks very much uh, for your time today. Anything you want to leave us with or anything we haven't, we haven't discussed? No, I mean, my only thing is looking ahead. You know, this is yeah. uh, continues to move. I talk about this Nike swoosh. If we're looking five years out, work from home levels will be higher than they are now. I mean, technology is getting better. Younger firms, younger CEOs are more in favor of this. You know, as the yeah. economy goes on, they grow. So this is stabilized now. But I think five, 10 years from now, we'll look back on this and say, I can't believe we were, you know, zooming on little laptops with grainy cameras and bad microphones back in 2023. And, you know, that won't be true anymore. A classic work from home star. My four-year-old just uh, joined the podcast in the background. So uh, I think I'll yeah, we can probably... Exactly. We should take, take, take this cue to say thank you and uh, appreciate the time. Thanks for joining me, Nick. Thanks very much. So thank you very much to Nick for coming on the show. Thanks to my son Asa for making that appearance at the end. And thank you to you for listening. I'll see you back here next week for a conversation with Matt Abrahams about communication.